0: Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult podcast. Tonight, the fifth Beatle, you could say, of the jackass crew and music video extraordinaire, Lance Bangs. Lance, how are things?
1: I'm doing okay. I had a amplifier uh, kind of pop and blow a fuse and a bunch of tubes blow and started like a bunch of electrical smoke in the house. And we were trying to trace if there was like a short within the walls until we figured out it was this amp. So I'm currently driving it to go get uh, fixed and checked out. But glad that the house didn't burn down.
0: <laughs> it's a good thing that the house didn't burn down. I I, I want to start this off. Since I'm recording here in Calgary, Alberta, you got a connection to a band from here called The Dudes. How did your relationship with them come to be? And and what, what's that whole story? Um, I don't have
1: any connection to the band The Dudes. I think somebody made that up and put that on wikipedia several years ago and i like the idea that there's misinformation that you don't correct that's floating around in the world so whoever made the wikipedia stuff like i i don't know if it's someone who's friends with that band or thought it'd be funny but like i i don't have any connection to them the date of birth that they have on wikipedia is not my date of birth but again i i like letting that stuff linger in this weird parallel construction rather than like Learning how to use Wikipedia to change it or correct it.
0: <laughs> I love that. I was like, I, I wonder if you really do have a connection to Calgary. I, I do have a connection to Calgary. I'm very fond of
1: Calgary, um, and I've come there and I've made some different shoots there over the years and had a great time. But uh, I have not ever toured with the band called the Dudes. Tell me about them. What are they like?
0: I'm not a fan, but I was. I was. Cu- I was. Uh, I was honestly curious the people that you work with it would be a little strange if you were <laughs> going to do something with that band what are they like so it's incredibly uh, um kind of like folky rock but very like trying to be mainstream okay how have you been enjoying your pandemic has it has it been a weird hit for you have you been able to keep busy this entire time it's been pretty wild um
1: you know everything that we thought was going to be happening in 2020 that we'd sort of planned or scheduled, like, all got disrupted and thrown in the air. My wife is a musician, uh, Corin Tucker, and her band Slater-Kinney was on tour in Europe at the time that sort of the outbreaks were going around there. And I was taking care of our daughter, and we had just started kind of pre-production and shooting a little bit of a new jackass feature film for Paramount. And so juggling all those things, you know, they were playing shows and having, like, weird dynamics where friends of theirs that they would normally see or hear from in each city or that were, you know, going to come backstage and say hi, would all be like, oh, I have this weird bug or flu. I don't know what's going on, but I've had a fever for three days. I don't think I can make it to the show. And then they started figuring out, like, you know, like we might be in the middle of some weird outbreak. Um, and then we had been having a good time shooting, like sort of the first week or so of this new Jackass feature film in Southern California. And took a couple days off when things started to sound a little bit suspect and then I left a bunch of equipment and cameras and recording gear and you know open glasses of water and stuff and like wasn't able to go back into that production office for seven months or so uh, once all the weird news of like COVID truly did hit the U.S. and everything started to clamp down. So since that time I um, did a lot of like Journalism and news reporting. I have a sort of a deep background in journalism from years ago, but hadn't really been using it too consistently in recent years, Uh, but started producing and directing segments for Vice News covering what was going on during the pandemic. It was able to kind of go up and cover things in Seattle when that autonomous or occupied zone was established in Capitol Hill, as well as all the demonstrations that were going on in Portland, which became like a nightly event for, you know, over 100, 150 nights in a row of sort of a post-reaction to George Floyd demonstrations and and Black Lives Matter movement within Portland. Um, I did a few music videos for artists here and there in a sort of a quarantine-contained, safe way, and started shooting footage with these younger journalists who go under the name All Gas No Breaks, and sort of uh, linking up with them sometimes to help out on what they were working on. So it's been a a strange and weirdly, you know, sometimes active, sometimes quiet time period.
0: Do you think the real change is going to come from the streets this time? Are are you noticing something different this time around?
1: Yeah, there's a a very large growth in sort of mutual aid networks of people setting up affinity groups and ways to kind of support or or help each other outside of past charitable charitable NGOs and outside of relying on any sort of... uh, Government programs, local or statewide or federal. And these networks are having accountability for each other, sort of having ways of, you know, checking or discussing issues if someone involved in the community is harmful to other people. How do you move past that but still keep the work that they're doing going from someone else stepping in? People that have specialties in whatever field, whether it's like building power blocks or uh, fixing cars or advising on, you know, how to get support from the city for sewage lines or whatever, all sort of like advising each other and making these different autonomous, anonymous blocks that you can sort of go to and get help or supplies or support in all these different fields without having to go through, you know, the sort of established patterns of past capitalism within modern culture and still get like healthy, fresh food or (laughs) fix a, a car that is beyond your knowledge of how to repair in a sort of a, um, mutual aid support structure. That's been something that's really grown in Seattle and Portland and is spreading to other places and, and could be like a meaningful change of like, you know, something that didn't happen in 2014, 15, right away, that is like grown or is more, um, solidified now in 2020, 2021.
0: Do you like just grabbing a camera and getting out there and doing a documentary style of filmmaking or do you prefer to sit down, do do some rehearsals, and and really map out what you're going to do over over the next course of however long the project is?
1: I take different approaches on different projects. Like I've sort of learned from the things I've made in the past, in a way that I know that work can be stronger if I do have a structure and, and set a schedule of like these important interviews should be done at this point within the overall schedule of everything in order to clarify the work or make themes emerge or to solidify like that the other people involved in the film know where I'm headed with it Um, but there's like a amazingly rewarding dynamic that happens from just having a sense or getting a feeling that something interesting is about to happen and grabbing a camera and being there for it and then moving around within the geographical area that things are happening and talking to the people that interest you and making something in real time when everything is kind of volatile and fresh and could go in any direction.
0: What led you to wanting to do music videos or did it kind of just fall into place that way? Honestly, that
1: and a lot of other types of filmmaking are things that have just come up as what people reached out to me for in different eras. Like I I sort of just am a uh, personal filmmaker and, and artist and people that have wanted to have me around have asked me to make whatever sort of things that are being made at that time. So when MTV was airing music videos more regularly, bands that wanted to work with me would ask about making a music video for them. When DVDs came out, people that wanted me to work with them would ask me to learn how to program or author or make DVDs. When that withered away, people asked me to make streaming programs for you know Netflix or streaming platforms. Like Things have just kind of shifted uh, with the underlying thing of just being a filmmaker that um, gets asked to collaborate or work with other musicians or artists or performers.
0: What do you feel like you've learned the most from your time doing music videos? Have, have you applied that to to your camera work as a whole, your, your artistry as a whole? Or is that kind of, when you're working on a music video, you're kind of just... It, that that source of of knowledge and tools are only applied when you're when you're working on those
1: yeah there are things that i learned over the course of making music videos that i didn't know when i began i i didn't really go to uh like a proper film school or the other way that people often get into making things is to start by working on other productions and sort of work their way up from being like a production assistant to whatever the next steps are and learning set protocol that way and i kind of sidestepped both of those and just was making things on my own with just a camera when I was a teenager. Um, So I didn't know or understand for a long time that a lot of music videos function better if a third of the way through and then two-thirds of the way through you're establishing some new element whether it's a different location or different setting or a different look. And so some of the things I made early on might have just been sort of a unified collage of you know one approach or one look or setting for most of the piece and then realized editorially later on that like oh if you had two-thirds of the way through when the bridge hit if you'd gone to a different location or a different setting or look it would have made the video more watchable for other people. Like I have a tendency to be very fascinated just by footage and looking at performers that I respect or value and a representation of them making music or if not that, a representation of visuals that feel like what the music sounds like. And so I can watch raw footage and be happy, and I can watch a single take of a musician that I like performing for 60 minutes straight and be completely engaged with it. But for other viewers that are maybe more casual about things or less entrenched with like an already deep regard for the performer that they're looking at or the song, to them it sort of gets stagnant stagnant, unless you are suddenly, like, at a different setting or location or the footage is now black and white or whatever when things change within the structure of the song when you get two-thirds of the way through or, you know, near the final chorus or the bridges or whatever. So that's something that I guess, like, started to plan or think of more consciously in more recent things that I've made but wasn't something that I knew when I was just intuitively making things as a teenager.
0: Well, you work a lot with musicians and comedians, both of whom really work in this dark, dingy kind of an element, in these darker kind of clubs, is there a filmmaking technique or do you approach rooms in a very specific way to, to get a good look for all the artists that you're dealing with?
1: I do. Um, that's like another thing that, that kind of goes back to the idea that people have just kind of wanted to work with me or collaborate with me and have asked me to do things that were whatever was getting made at the time. So uh, the comedian David Cross was doing Mr. Show uh, with Bob Odenkirk in Los Angeles. And when I was traveling out to LA in the mid 90s, um, they were like the sort of inventive comedy scene that they were part of really stood out to me. And so if I was in town doing a music video for like a major label band in that era that those were getting made, at night I would go see Bob Odenkirk, David Cross, Paul F. Tompkins, that crowd of people doing sort of subversive. Uh, comedy in different spaces that weren't normally like traditional comedy clubs but would be like a laundromat or the back room of a bookstore things like that Um, and so when David Cross wanted to do a what would have normally been a comedy special in the early 2000s after the September 11th attacks he didn't want to do the same kind of HBO thing that he'd done in the past where there's like a set built on a stage of a theater and kind of a controlled audience and lighting it and shooting it the way that those things tend to get made. So he asked if I would just like travel with him and instead of performing in traditional comedy venues, he wanted to go to like the 40 Watt Club or you know, rock venues in Austin, Texas and kind of hit a lot of places in like Little Rock, Arkansas um, that don't normally have like that sort of comedy showing up at the local bar that the White Stripes play at and shooting those kind of places, they don't have like, you know, built in massive lighting or curtains or a proscenium arch they're typically like a black box rock venue kind of a space so that that did tie into stuff that i'd shot of bands in some of those same venues that we were then shooting like a comedy film in um and then other comedians that were of a sim- similar sensibility to david cross would be like yeah that's i want lance to make something so it doesn't feel like a contemporary hbo stand-up special of that time period which is sort of a semi-formulaic thing at that era um So what I tend to do is I like the way that emotionally a performer delivers something that hits the audience. And so in Western culture, the eye tends to go left to right. Like if you're reading text on a page in a book, your eye's starting on the left and then moving to the right as you take in information. And psychologically, I feel like that's the sort of way that people are based in sort of like trusting information when they're perceiving it. So I'll deliberately put the camera on what would be called stage left or, uh, sorry, stage right so that it's house left so that the visual of the performer, if you're looking at them in profile, your eyes kind of traveling out of their mouth, past their hands towards the audience in a way that you believe or buy what they're saying. And then I'll contradict that with coverage from the other side if they're kind of taking you on a false premise or something that's like meant to get subverted or flipped around or turned the other direction, like a sort of a false conceit that they're delivering for a little bit as a setup before hitting it for the punchline. So structures like that that come out, you know, for musicians or performers or speakers, I psychologically tend to compose or or build things that way. I like to have it composed where the different, you know, closer and tighter angles will consistently feature their face or mouth or eyes uh, as a sort of expressive way in a similar position in the frame when I cut from one to the other. So in a close-up, I'll try and put the eyes in the same spot that I'm gonna have their head and face in a medium shot or a wide shot so that when you cut between them, you're sort of keeping the viewer emotionally engaged or connected to the musician or singer or performer or, or comedian in a way that pulls that all together and, and lets the visuals kind of flow more easily rather than kind of like scanning all over having like discombobulated um, contradicting places of where they are in the frame. So I guess those are some of the approaches that I've, I've had, but yeah, you're right to point out that there's a kind of a common theme of a lot of like rock venues and clubs, both for some of the comedy work and musicians.
0: Do you find yourself editing while you're directing or is this really a process in the editing room and you distrust whatever I shoot on the day Hopefully, I can make something out of this when I get to the editing suite.
1: My favorite approach is to be conscious of what I'm shooting. It helps me to know like what other coverage I need to get to tell the story. Like if I know that I need to get back across the street and get a wider thing that shows like this is how many people representing this interest are here, and this is how many people representing this other interest are, and whatever weird surreal normal life is happening to the side or between them for scale. Um, being aware that like the edit's not going to work if you don't have that option of like showing variations of things like that or giving context or knowing what I've gotten from past work or past interviews that will like echo something that's being said by someone now or contradict them or have a different perspective on it. Um, So I'm conscious of that while I'm shooting, but I also benefit a lot from working with editors who I don't tell everything that I have in mind to and letting them get familiar with the raw footage and see creatively like what they get out of the raw material and then I'll sort of step in and talk about uh, the things that I did have in mind
0: When you're working in the editing suite do you, are, are you are you there from front to back or are you really allowing the editor to do his thing and then come in later? Are you kind of sitting behind him uh, that whole time? I uh, I
1: tend to let the editor have some time to get their own familiarity with the footage and I know what I have in mind, but I I like to creatively let them take a pass at it or see where they would find something that I wasn't thinking of. Um, And I've been happy with being surprised at the choices that some editors have made before I step in and be like, okay, let's go back and find this other moment and weave this in here, connect this here. Um, I've had a lot of great editors I've worked with over the years, and they definitely make things better than if I just did it completely alone.
0: There's been this common theme on this show about how comedy is kind of picked up where punk left off. Do you kind of agree with that statement?
1: I feel like there's a stronger community that gets built within a music scene between the other participants than what gets built out of like a comedy audience. Like the world of like people that promote shows and make flyers and take photographs and bring you on their radio show to talk about it or make a compilation cassette and mail it to a friend in another part of the world is stuff that I think of more uh, strongly within music culture than I do in um, comedy culture. So there is, like, an ability for someone to just kind of, like, get their perspective or point of view out without needing too much production around them that uh, comedy allows. But as far as, like, building an actual, like, scene or movement or shift that can kind of like soundtrack your life and make everything feel better and change what kind of denim jacket you buy and wear and how you decorate it is something that I see happen more coming out of music culture than comedy culture.
0: Uh, I want to focus on breadcrumb trail for a little bit how did your uh, how did your relationship with slint come to be were were you a fan of them before you even started thinking about maybe doing a documentary on them
1: yeah for sure like i i was aware of Squirrelbait. just i was a teenager at the time and the idea that these like young people were you know traveling and kind of sounded a little bit like husker du and were playing shows and putting out records on homestead was exciting or or stood out to me uh, when i was a teenager in, uh, near an Air Force base in New Jersey. And then I was in Athens, Georgia, and was uh, performing in a band where I did vocals, and we traveled up to an all-ages space in Asheville, North Carolina, called Squash Pile, run by an artist named Patty Torno and her partner at the time, Chris. And they had built, you know, sort of based on the DC punk ethos, they had made like an all-ages, no-alcohol, venue that bands could perform at or arts events could happen at or that local kids could go and like play a board game and hang out and be away from their house and stepped into there one night having driven up from Athens several hours away driving up into the mountains there and they were playing a copy of Spiderland on vinyl that had just come out and they were basically buying anything that was on touch and go at that time but there was so little information like the record was this totem or object that had no text on the front sleeve just this like striking photograph of these four heads floating in water in a quarry in black and white and they didn't seem like they were trying to be cool they didn't seem like tough guys or you know we're trying to be like this or you really couldn't know what the music was going to be like by looking at that cover but it did feel deliberate and stark and kind of striking and the name slint didn't it wasn't a word that previously existed it wasn't something that had a defined meaning um the record being called Spiderland, was this evocative and sort of, like, bewildering title that wasn't, like, reflected in the lyrics on anything on the record. Having three tracks on each side made it seem like these are pared down to, like, the, the, you know, six longer compositions that make up this unified work rather than, like, 12 tracks and a bonus thing on the CD. It felt very deliberate and of a certain voice that Didn't exist prior to this record being out there, that it was a a whole new world that they were creating. And the intimacy of it, the combination of like sometimes heavy music, sometimes clean music, um, with whispered vocals and a sense of hushed, troubled intimacy, really made an impression in this kind of like darkened, all ages, mostly empty space that we'd driven several hours into like the woods to go find. so I listened to that record twice that night back to back and was just kind of drawn in and then had to do a performance. And the band I was in at the time, like I was doing spoken word vocals essentially. And so it felt like, wow, there's someone else out there doing something that sounds similar that is being pressed into a physical object and being distributed in a way that it would show up at places like this. So all that was very like entrancing and, and built this mythology in my head. And then it was very difficult to track down any verifiable information about them from that point on. Like they'd already broken up before the record had been pressed. There was no interview or tour. There was no music video. They weren't coming to play the 40 Watt Club. They weren't, you know, really available uh, for you to find out more about or do more about. But just looking at the names of the people involved and realizing there was some overlap with Squirrel Bait, there was some overlap with like other projects that were coming out on Drag City at the time. And, you know, talking to people pre-internet and trying to get a sense if you knew someone that booked the Metro in Chicago and they were like, oh, yeah, they they played here one time. It was really strange. You know, like, just trying to hear folklore about them. And then as time went on, like, friendships with other bands, uh, the guys in Nirvana, the guys in Pavement, that had had any kind of, like, interaction or regard for that record or had crossed paths with them and had stories, like, the story sounded very eccentric and strange about the behavior of the people that had been in the group. And then there were rumors about, you know, that they had sort of some of them had gone into a mental institution after the recording or, you know, like this sort of like heightened um, whispered stories that may or may not have been true kind of drew me in and and deepened my regard and connection for that that music. Um, So I started traveling from Athens, Georgia, up to Louisville with a camera just to go visit or see other bands that kind of came after them, bands like Rodin and film them and the Palace Brothers, everything that Will Oldham was doing. Um, and it was a great strange town that was similar to Athens, Georgia in the way that it had a river kind of cutting through it that I think adds to creativity of places. I think that throughout the world, areas that are on a river or have water moving through it tend to be like stranger and more fertile for creative work than a city that's just based on railroads like, I don't know, Phoenix, Arizona, maybe. Um, There are more bands that are great and strange and more writers out of Louisville, Kentucky than a much larger city like Phoenix that's like a a railroad town. Um, So all that started to kind of like grow or mutate in my mind in a way that I would bring a camera and shoot footage and try and track things down or meet people that were involved in the music or, you know, had been roommates or fellow travelers of those people and and kind of collect stories and and try and film stuff. And then eventually befriended the members of the band at the time that they got back together uh, for some shows at Altamira's parties in like 2005 and was able to kind of earn their trust to go travel with them and shoot footage and have them open up in a series of late night conversations, just myself and a camera most of the time, um, building out that story that kind of revealed what had been going on and what their lives were like and why they had sort of like not really publicly followed up spider land with like other albums after that i was very happy to make that film it meant a lot to me and it was something that i just kind of like kept working on for you know i don't know twenty, fifteen, twenty 15 20 years whatever it was that went into it
0: did you find that it was hard to find some of that archival material or once you started cracking into it it became a little easier to acquire this from the, the personnel.
1: Yeah, it, you know, even in the era of YouTube, most footage of them had not really circulated within, like, tape-creating communities or passed around on the internet or ever put onto a DVD. So they were kind of, mis- you know, other bands that existed a year or two after them, like, you can find every performance of God of Our Voices or Buffalo Tom or other bands that were playing, like, 92, 93, 94, but because they kind of, like, stopped in 1990 and they happened to play shows that there weren't people with video cameras at that often like for whatever reason there was audio of them live but there wasn't visual representation or or video footage and they'd never done a music video or been on a tv appearance or things like that so spending time with them um brian's younger brother michael that had gone down into the basement of Britt walford's house with a camcorder and filmed some of their like writing and arranging and Practice sessions was invaluable, and I'm very happy that he shot that and held on to it and kept it in good form over the years. And then tracking down that there were other people that had, you know, been at whatever Battle of the Bands that they played when they were even younger, and someone found like a parent that had brought a camcorder to film these insanely long sound checks that they were doing at like a high school Battle of the Band, where everyone was like frustrated and just like couldn't believe that they wouldn't get off the stage or, you know, at least finish performing a song. So that stuff was fun to kind of like dig into and, and find and, and show for the first time.
0: After that, you, you kind of worked with Netflix through a lot of the, the 2010s. How was your relationship with them? And do you feel like they're, they're an incredibly fertile place for artists right now?
1: Yeah, they've been really supportive. It's strange. There was a, a company called Palm Pictures that was based in New York that was trying to do artistic dvds during the dvd era we made the um the director's label series it was like the work of spike jones and chris cunningham and michelle gondry and then another batch of four with like anton corbin and, and jonathan glazer and, and filmmakers after that um and some of the key people who were there at that dvd company uh, moved on to being like early people at netflix there's a guy named ted Sarandos that was a fan of bob and david for mr show and friendly with them and had good judgment that stepped in as like the CEO of Netflix and was really going out of his way to like fund things he wanted to see or that he thought should exist. And they've been great at sort of like making things happen and getting them into, into existence and getting them distributed in a way that felt great. I think I might've described it earlier in this conversation, like there's a sort of a set way that The people that were making comedy specials at HBO or Showtime had expectations of the look and the type of comedian that they would give a special to and and all that. And Netflix was, like, generous with paying performers and comedians as much or more money and letting them be a little bit more creative or inventive or daring with what they did with it. Um, And that was great to kind of work with people during that time period. We did one for Chelsea Peretti, who I think is, like, a very distinct and sharp and i don't know i really like her her voice and her tone quite a bit um where she didn't want to do the kind of typical audience shots of people clapping which you kind of need in some performances if you're trying to hide an edit or get from one section to another or cut between two shows and they're standing on the wrong side of the stage on one um so we would film like dogs in the audience or babies or you know just surreal visuals like that to cut away too um that made that special kind of unique and distinct and strange and unsettling in, in certain moments. Um, and I don't know that we could have gotten away with that on other outlets, um, but they were supportive and have always been great about, like, getting behind performers and comedians. And again, some of the artists wouldn't have gotten a deal at other places. Like, they were they were kind of backing uh, more unconventional performers and comedians for, you know, we did a whole music thing with Fred Armisen, who's not a stand-up, but just sort of, like, weird musical things that were comedic and funny um, with special guests and drummers that was like predicated on being like geared at drummers, which is a very niche audience to like get the funding to make a comedy special for.
0: When you have such relationships with people like Spike Jones and even your wife, Corin, is it easy to bounce ideas off of each other? Or do you guys kind of keep your, your art to yourselves and your personal lives, personal lives?
1: I would say with friends and peers and collaborators like Spike, it's great to bounce ideas off of each other. Um, Some of the most rewarding conversations I've had in my life are with him while I'm either trying to figure out how to make a structure work or when he's sort of like sharing ideas of what he's developing or working on. Um, His mind is, is definitely very... Sharp and provocative, and, and questions why things are the way that they're typically set up or approached, and figuring out like different approaches or the meaning behind why something is the way that it has been in the past and how to subvert that or make it better or different in the future. Um, with my marriage and with Corinne, uh, certainly like supportive and, and listen to everything that she's working on, but I wouldn't want to tamper with or interfere or put any of my vision into like what she creates because I have such a strong respect for it and I wouldn't want someone else to be tampering with or thinking that they were helping by adding ideas on a band that I loved that wasn't part of their normal like healthy process of how they make things so um, I certainly don't like try and pitch lyrics or you know what if you go to this court here or whatever on the work that she shares with me but rather I'm like supportive and Um, try and set her up to win and take care of whatever at the household or family to like give her time to focus on what she's creating. And similarly, like I, I show her work more often when it's done than when I'm like in the middle of making something. Um, And I'm always happy to like, kind of try and impress her with like a finished piece that I'm proud of.
0: Be it that you're Getting to shoot a lot of political things right now, and working for Vice and being of the moment in these socially conscious films or projects for Vice. Do you see yourself doing more socially conscious films like the Lazarus Effect coming up? Is this has this ignited a spark within you to do more of this?
1: I guess I've always been involved in sort of social justice work and uh, political work since I was a teenager onwards, and then. In the way that I was describing earlier, that people just sort of reached out about collaborating or making something in whatever form existed at that time, whether it was stand-up specials or music videos or DVD authoring or box set producing or you know record producing or, or whatever made sense, um, getting the opportunity to go make work uh, on specific sort of uh, you know AIDS treatment in Central Africa. Um, was like a really rewarding experience and i definitely would be open to going and doing more in that realm uh if people asked her if ideas came to me about those sort of things
0: do you feel like you approach uh working behind the camera as a cinematographer in the same way that you do a director or do you have two completely different mindsets or when you are directing do, are you really just looking at it as I, I'm like really I'm a cinematographer I'm, I'm a camera guy I'm, I'm all about the visuals here.
1: No I love detaching responsibility for all of the visuals and taking on the larger ambition of directing a piece or producing a piece or executive producing a piece like that's been a really rewarding thing to grow into and uh, getting to collaborate with other DPs that I like because I find that they they tend to like add ideas or have a perspective that I wouldn't have automatically gotten to on my own in a way that makes the work better or stronger. I like kind of stepping in on some of the television work I've done for, like, Portlandia or um, Better Things on FX as a director where there was already a, a DP that you liked that was working in a kind of established way for what the show normally looked like. And then having the ability to kind of, like, focus on all the other elements of directing and have them, you know... Handle that side of it or come to you with what they would normally do in a setup and seeing if that worked for what you're directing or not.
0: Do you enjoy the fast paced nature of directing television? I do. I
1: like whenever I'm making something, I kind of click into like a very sharpened tunnel vision uh, mode, and answers come quicker, and decisions come quicker, and reactions to things speed up in a way that I really enjoy. You know, it's, it's almost like a completely different mind state takes over and you're in this other mode or zone of yourself for the time that you're directing and then decompressing back out of that once you're done with those responsibilities is like a really great feeling or way to kind of like experience the world off and on. Um, so I, I definitely like working in television when there's like a more confined schedule and you can't make the slim film for 15 years. You've got to do this episode within three to five days of of defined scheduled shooting. And you're working with like availability of sets and lighting and what the performers and cast members are going through each day and how to unify them or get them in the right place for the performances.
0: Well, I want to take you way back now. How big was film for you in in your formative youth? And or, or would you say that music was more of what you were getting brought up on in your early days.
1: Honestly, I think that music is where I really sort of disassociated from the world and went deeper into and lived within the landscape of records that I was fixated on or obsessed with and that the tool that I had or that I developed more was a shooting Super 8 film of places that I was traveling or what I was experiencing while having headphones on and listening to music intensely. Um, So identity-wise and where my head and my feelings are is more invested in music than in cinema. But the way that I made things or expressed things was in cinema. Um, And so having other artists and musicians see the stuff that I was making when I was like a late teenager uh, and having me start to make music video or live performance or would you know tour projections to play behind them um or to travel with the band on tour and be a fellow co- you know companion on the way and shoot things as things happened um kind of initially came as an extension of my super uh detached from a reality living deeply within music and records i would say and then film was just a way to when express you- it
0: when did you pick up your first super eight probably 11
1: or 12 and was like intensely filming a lot when I was 12.
0: Do you, do you miss the days of film or do you actually enjoy digital?
1: I, there's great benefits to digital, but I still actively shoot small gauge film 16 and super eight, uh, almost, you know, weekly or always kind of have a camera at my side to, uh, to shoot things as I go along. Is there a format that you've, yeah, I'm, I'm particular. I, I don't like color negative film stocks. I, I like, Reversal like Ektachrome 100D. It's a current uh, Kodak stock that they brought back after having not having it for a few years. But like I've stockpiled the films that I love and kept them frozen or refrigerated so I can continue to compulsively film on Super 8 and on 16 on film. And uh, I've woven it into other work when I can, like, you know, even in like a 3D digitally shot jackass movie. I'll have stuff that I shot along the way in Super 8 that ends up making it into the film in some form or is in the credits or or whatever. And um, that's still sort of a compulsion or a a way of living that I've maintained this whole time.
0: Do you do processing in your house yourself? No.
1: I have found labs that I like, and they've dwindled or kind of like gone under over the years, but there's still a few. There's one in North Hollywood called Spectra. Uh, It's a couple of employees that used to be at Pro 8mm but left there in frustration and sort of like in a, you know, deliberate attempt wanted to like make their own place that they felt would be better or handle film or people better. And I like to support them and and send work to them. Um, For still film, there's a a guy in Memphis, Tennessee, who's running a small film lab in his home uh, under the name Memphis Film Lab. I like to send him still film in 35 and 120 for him to process. Um, You know, the, the places are dwindling, but the remaining true believers that are out there I like to support and continue to work with
0: Is there a format that you've never used that you would actually like to use something like 70 mil?
1: Yeah there was a time that we thought we were going to get to make a skate film for IMAX Um, Spike Jones had made connections with people at IMAX and was interested in like the liberation and freedom of a skate film versus the cumbersome physical format of shooting on IMAX film like which is a massive heavy camera that generally like you can't move very quickly or briskly and that you tend to just like set up or put on a crane and then get footage with. Trying to see if we could like smash those two different approaches together and make something that was like as liberated and free will as escape video, but to do it on that massive scale of IMAX. And so at different points, maybe in the 2010 kind of era, we thought we might be able to get something like that going. And then um, I think Spike might even be like on some kind of creative board at IMAX now. And so when we...
0: He, he actually, I think it was two years ago now, they gave him, like, a green light that he could potentially do something within a 10-year period.
1: Yeah. And so he directed a, um, a project called The Beastie Boys Story that I was a, a second-unit director on where there is, like, an IMAX version of that that um, would have been in IMAX theaters in the spring one year ago of 2020 but everything got shut down uh as far as those IMAX screenings because of COVID and I don't know when the world reopens again whether that will have like a theatrical run in IMAX or what will happen but like a version of the film exists for IMAX for uh you know to run in those theaters if if IMAX becomes like a place to go see things again
0: do you think that it's important for guys like Kanye to release these very experimental half-hour things in the IMAX right now well I guess not right now but, but before the pandemic hit to keep this independent spirit alive going even on that big format
1: I love any sort of unusual presentation of someone's work so I love going to see a stand-up comedy in the back of a laundromat I would like to see like a light you know installation that Kanye worked with with uh, James Turrell. Is that, if I got that name right, I'm blanking on if uh, if Turrell was the artist that he was sort of drawing from for the... Geographic. I, th- I think that's who it was. Um, if not his work, certainly inspired by him. I like when things like that happen and you go to a place and see something that doesn't normally happen there. So I am all for that and, and you know wish that Miranda July would make something in IMAX and I wish that someone else would make something to go... You know, if the Flaming Lips put on a concert where you have to put on headphones and the sound is 360, like, I'm always into when people do a presentation that's unusual. There was a tour that Radiohead was maybe going to do where they were going to travel with their own PA system and build, like, a inflatable structure uh, so they could just take, like, a field somewhere and make it sound like they wanted it to sound consistently. Um, I don't think they got to stage that, but, like, when they were trying to make that happen, I was into that. There was, like, concerts that Pink Floyd did that I was too young to ever go to where they had like quad sound and a azimuth coordinator that was like panning the audio quadraphonically around the room all around you like anything like that I'm drawn to for like someone disrupting the normal presentation or way that things are are put out and it sort of like heightens my focus or attention to like what they're trying to do
0: have you been missing live shows yeah deeply I everything.
1: yeah I get so much out of being in an audience and There were bands that were doing great live performances that got sidelined like that. Like, I don't know if you've listened to that band, Big Thief, but, like, going to see them live and when they Mm -hmm. played that song not, like, I wanted to be in a room where they did that another five times last year and didn't get to go experience that five more times. Um, I love just being swept up in amplified sound. I like feeling the sound waves pass through me. I like being in an audience and feeling the dynamic shift of, like, how much attention people are paying and how they perk up when a song that they have a deeper emotional resonance to hits them. And uh, I love watching Slater Kinney play. I am frustrated. Like, it would have been a great summer last year. They were going to do a co-headlining tour with Wilco and go play all these, like, outdoor amphitheaters that I'd been with with other bands in the past. But, like, to have, you know, your wife and take your kids to go see it and be in these like spaces that I went to as a teenager was going to be a great summer. And all that's been pushed back to like, hopefully having happening in August of 2021, but we we'll, you know, it seems like we're going to have to see how vaccine dist- distribution works and how the transmission levels are looking before that.
0: Be it that you, that you have a, a young one in the house what do you notice their, their viewing or music habits are like? Are are you are you impressed by what they're picking up and what they're finding?
1: Yeah, so much so. Like, it, it's emotionally rewarding to see that each of my kids has like found their own relationship with music. I love that they each have used headphones to kind of make it a more intimate experience to be able to like visually float through the world, but have an interior landscape going from like music pumping directly into their ears, things that they're choosing on their own. Um, one of the benefits of Spotify is that you can sort of see if they're on your same plan like what they're listening to, and I've learned a bunch from like weird stuff that my son has discovered that I wouldn't have come across myself, but also that he will go back and listen to Galaxy 500 or something that's like, I didn't steer him to that, I don't know if you noticed that I had the records in the house, but like, I didn't say, hey you gotta check this out, but like whatever ma- like map that he's following that leads him to realizing what a great record on fire is on his own, it's Really thrilling to like click on Spotify late at night and see that that's what he's listening to in his own bedroom somewhere. Is
0: is that your is that your go-to Spotify, or do you still find yourself putting vinyl on all the time? Oh,
1: I, for me myself, it's vinyl all the time. But if I'm in a car and you know want to stream something while I'm driving to a film lab or whatever, um, Spotify is the streaming service that like I like the aesthetic of the most as far as the color scheme and combination. I don't know that it's uh, any less morally reprehensible than title or rhapsody or itunes or whatever but like the sort of red and white layout of apple i couldn't deal with and uh just on a sensory level like spotify's design and and color scheme like fit what i was listening to more
0: what was it like growing up in in your household were your parents playing music all the time when you were growing up
1: they were they had a record collection and my mom is a was a music teacher and so we had a piano and violin and um you know, would go see music performances and events and definitely like had records and knew what it was like as a kid to go wander through the record department of a department store or to go into an independent record store and kind of like browse the aisles and experience what was going on. Um, started buying records when I was fairly young and had like a receiver and speakers and a turntable in my room and grew up that way and I'm very glad to have had that. And I, I made sure that each of my kids had like a record player and you know a component system that they could sort of like learn how to physically operate themselves when they were young and encourage them to kind of like pick out anything they wanted in a record store like so my son would just look at things you know based on the design and um picked up you know great records that went on to be part of how he experienced being a child or a teenager so like Ratatat had whatever kind of black sleeve with like a gold foil i don't know if it's like a cat or a panther or whatever sort of a you know large cat head was on the cover of it like that jumped out to him as a kid and so that instrumental music worked great for him like when he was like walking to school or riding a bus or skateboarding or whatever as a kid like that perfectly felt like something that he discovered for himself and picked out and was thrilled by like what it did to soundscape his life
0: do you find yourself trying to find newer artists new films new new records during this time Or do you find yourself revisiting a lot of stuff?
1: Oh, I've been catching up on new stuff that I didn't have uh, enough time. Like, I I travel a lot. I talk to people at record stores and, and local music scenes and pick up things that they're excited about and have had more time to kind of like unseal those records or cassettes and play them during the COVID shutdown than I normally would. Like, you know, I'm happy about it, but I definitely have boxes of things from goner records in Memphis from 2015 during a shoot that I hadn't really opened and listened to everything yet. Or, you know what I mean? So having the opportunity to really kind of like dig through everything and identify what I like. And then for people that went on to never make a record again, I feel glad that I caught them during the time that they were in their twenties and made a record or, you know, seeing what people ended up doing with their lives if they didn't continue that path or other people that then turned into like making more great work. Yeah, I've I've loved having the time to, like, catch up on stuff and uh, dig through more of it now. But I I don't feel like I've gone back and just, like, nostalgically listened to the comfort of things from my teenage years so much as I've, like, enjoyed finding things that people were trying to make now. I think it's important to support things that are really happening now. Um, Like, always, I was impressed with artists that I respected or, like, spending time with who valued other contemporary work and other things that were happening like one of the things that i learned is like a great like easy to explain move like if you go to a bar with michael stipe and they're just playing the same spotify playlist or whatever of like every recognizable song from whatever and you just say like can we please listen to music from this century and then it just means that they can't keep playing the clash which is a great band and everyone likes whatever but like you've got to make room to support people that are doing stuff now and not just stream the Rolling Stones and the Clash and things from literally, like, the previous century. And so by putting it that way, the person is usually like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll switch it to Bandcamp." and this is my roommate's project.
0: Are, are you hopeful with the youth right now?
1: Yeah, yeah. I see, you know, we spoke earlier in this conversation about the rise in Portland and the Pacific Northwest and Seattle of these mutual aid groups where people are, like, breaking down the structures of, like, you can't rely on some local government youth outreach program or, you know, the libraries are all shut, whatever. Like, we're going to build our own lending library. We're going to fix people's cars in a mutual aid form. And then if you can teach us how to grow plants or garden or, you know, make a power cell block or whatever, like, kind of exchanging those uh, support forms with each other like that's been really inspiring and I I want to see things like that continue I like the way that young people are reevaluating the world my daughter definitely sees the world in a distinct way from how people saw the world 10 years ago um, her values and priorities and language that she uses is definitely like something that's evolved and mutated from like what the world was like when I was younger I think it's important to keep that perspective that like people are experiencing a different world than what you lived in you know the access of social media that is automatic in her phone from pre-adolescence onward is something that's different from how we all grew up. Um, I'm glad when she likes things from previous eras, like I'm glad that she uses a record player, but I'm also, you know, she's found great music over TikTok or whatever. And I think that is exciting and uh, I'm happy about it.
0: Do you find yourself sleeping better at night now that Trump is out of office?
1: I do. I was stressed out terribly. That I was producing a Vice News shoot the night of the election, and it had felt confident that he was not going to win in 2016, and so when the results that night started shifting the other direction and, you know, contrary to polling, he was winning in states that he had not been projected to win in, like that sort of gut punch and feeling. And then I was in D.C. covering the inauguration in January of 2017, and You know, there was, like, the massive outpouring of people for the Women's March, and then there was, like, sort of J-20, the day of the inauguration. The D.C. Metro Police were just, like, truly kettling demonstrators and sweeping up anybody that had been on the same block and, like, pinning them against a wall, not allowing them to leave and doing mass arrests, and genuinely prosecuting people, not dropping the charges after they'd, like, stopped that day in a way that, like, tied people up in a bad legal situation for years. And, like, you know, like, it was really grotesque. I got hit with a baton by a police officer that rushed me. I got tear gassed or pepper sprayed. Um, it was like a startling plunge into like day one of like a nightmare shift and like brutality from people in power. And I was stressed the night of the election during this coverage, it was like rainy and cold. And the demonstration that was happening that night in Portland was kind of an edgier one that wasn't, you know, wasn 't a good vibe or a good feeling, and um, as news was coming in and things were not clear, and that like states you know were looking like they could go towards trump electoral college wise in a way that was like not decisively yeah you know, like you want more of the country to be like definitively like seventy percent of people agree that was a terrible mistake we made we 're either sitting this election out because we realized we got it wrong last time, or we 've learned from like how evil things got, and we like can get behind this like moderate person on the other side this time to have it not be like that but to be as close as it was was definitely like you know depressing and felt like a setback and that we were not uh, moving as healthily towards a better system as we could so that night was like I was stuck inside a van driving around with a crew getting rained on not having anything to really like Report definitively either way Because of the sort of like uncertainty and the fact that it took A couple of days for like results to come in and clarify Like where things are really going
0: Where do you think the progressives go From here though? Do you think that It's a good thing that there's a moderate in office?
1: I think it's A compromised position for us all To be in. I think that In my hope the progressives Like push from the left and Get concessions and get Action in this window of time That we have with uh A sort of a balanced Senate, and I've been happy so far with some of the surprising to me progressive movements, uh, uh, sort of actions that have come out as executive orders within the first couple of weeks. It could have been much worse than it's been so far, but I know that things are going to get, you know, less progressive as the true What I've seen out of Joe Biden over the years is not someone that's like a progressive um, interested person. So I've been surprised at some of the executive orders so far, but we'll see how it continues to go. What's the reaction in Alberta been about the pipeline?
0: (laughs) Uh, People here are losing their minds. And it's, it's a funny thing because i don't care if you believe in a pipeline or not. I truly do not believe that you should take a gamble on taxpayers' dollars when it's truly a gamble it was It was never a sure thing for that pipeline at any point in time, so to use that much of taxpayer dollars I think really needs to wake a lot of people up in this province um, we're We're being run here by this trump junior like figure. The problem with him, though, is Trump wasn 't smart in the way this guy's smart; he knows what he 's doing, and he 's trying to he 's trying to get everything just into law and not just sign executive orders he 's trying to make the make these things stick constitutional wise it 's a very scary moment in alberta i 'm honestly not sure where we go from here.
1: yeah, can we continue to talk about Alberta for a couple of minutes of course, so I've had great experiences there over the years traveling through with bands. It has, to me, a very high concentration of very good record stores, but you have a a distinct subculture that I haven't seen in most other places of like high end audio, audiophile equipment and vendors. And like a record store, rather than just being full of like this week's built to spill record or whatever, is like selling massive quantities of like 180 gram. Uh, you know, Virgin Vinyl pressing, audiophile quality reissue of whatever record. Like the, the main thing was almost like demonstrating the technology of like high-end audio represent, re- reproduction rather than just like songs that you like. Do you know what I'm talking about? There, there is that? something.
0: There is something to be said for audiophiles in this city. If they will leave those bootlegs and and, and just shitty pressings on the shelf and they want audio they they want proper audio they want these high-end systems they want high-end transfers they want the 180 grams it's it's a really interesting thing and sound operators in this city also as (laughs) we have some really shitty venues if we really want to get down to it i think the big four i've traveled all over the Big Four might be one of the worst venues I've ever seen a concert in, in my life. Yeah. The thing about that, though, sound operators here try their absolute hardest, if they're actually from Calgary, to tr- still try to make that place sound good. There is something about the quality and wanting there to be quality in this city that I do have to, I, I, I got to tip my hat to all the, all the audiophiles in, in Calgary and Edmonton. They really bring the game every time.
1: You know, you do have the mix of sort of, like, used record stores that also have, like, beat-up magazines and books and other ephemera. Are there places that, you know, you can find out-of-print fanzines and Patty Smith poetry books and stuff like that? Like, what's, what's the landscape for other things? Because, like, I like the idea that it's often a frozen Snowden area, and so people would reach out and order things mail-order from the States or through Canadian distributors and then hold on to them. But I feel like there's more of that in Calgary than in plenty of other cities. And is it that, like, do people have money from the oil industry and kind of blow it on creature comforts when they're snowed in or why why does Calgary have such a high amount of all those things?
0: It's a weird thing. I'm, I'm not really sure. I think it's because there was a time, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, where lots of bands did not come here. Sure. And when a band did come here, it was like a big event. It was it was huge. And it was bands like, like the Jesus Lizard that would come here or bands like Fugazi. So this underground kind of a a, a thing always resonated within Alberta. And we always had this independent music scene here through bands like The Smalls and uh, SNFU. And even our neighbors not that far away in DOA, there was this punk and, and metal thing always running through the veins of Alberta. So this punk and DIY spirit always ran through none of these people <laughs> it's it's funny when you're when you at a show in calgary it's not a lot of oil people there and the people at the record stores the people buying buying these things they're not really in the oil business they're more tradespeople. it's it's a lot of electricians a lot of plumbers a lot of hvac guys when you go up to edmonton though that's where you get the oil guys and it's 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 interesting because it's harder to actually find things in Edmonton than it is in Calgary. So you have places like Sloth Records in Calgary, and and like you were saying for for the fanzines, you can get your fanzines. If they don't have it. They'll bring it in. They make a really conscious decision to to bring these old things in there, and people in Calgary chew that up. You don't really get that in the same way in Edmonton, but I will say there's a lot more record stores in Edmonton. So I'm really not sure why the oil guys up there are that in into the scene. But I, yeah, I, I honestly don't know why that is.
1: And then some of the times that have come through in recent years, it's been performances uh, at like the casinos that are nearby for kind of like, you know, several thousand seats. Um, is that a different audience than who goes to see a rock band in the downtown area or do people just go out there when like a big American band gets brought in?
0: I will say this about the casinos. They know what their capacity is and they know that the punk metal alternative community always shows up for a show. It doesn't matter if it happens downtown Calgary, downtown Edmonton, or if you got to drive a little bit to the casinos, they're going to fill the house every single time because of this underground culture that is here. So there has been a really conscious decision through the last, I would say, 10 years through the casinos that they're going to bring these more niche bands that really, it, it, it seems, when you go to a casino, it's it's almost like, it, <laughs> like it's a death wish for a band. These guys here, up here though, it's like they're trying to give them the revival. It's not the death wish. They know the people are going to come out And they're really actively trying to get these older, niche kind of bands into the casinos. Right on. And
1: then is Calgary supportive of the local musicians that have done interesting things? Like if Chad Van Galen does a performance, do people come out for it? Or is that something that's like people in the States are buying his records, but like locally, he doesn't fill a a club or venue? Like what's that world like?
0: Chad's interesting because I feel... He really likes to play small venues, so it's a little hard to tell. Um, I I would say, like, for the most part, he he is filling it. It's definitely not in the way that it used to be because more bands do come here now. It's not like in the 90s. In the 90s, when you had bands like SNFU and the Smalls touring constantly up and down this province, they'd play the tiny little towns... 45 minutes south of Calgary or an hour north of Edmonton and there was a lot more draw to the local acts and wanting to support Albertan back in the 90s, early 2000s. I don't see that as much anymore. It's really kind of dying off. Now I will say the hip-hop community has definitely picked up that slack. Kids now underground hip-hop artists, they will show up every single time, sell it out, support local all the time when it comes to hip-hop.
1: I have a few more questions based on that. If a, if a kind of beginning or smaller audience performer in Alberta is just getting going, at what point can they kind of benefit from Canadian content? Like if, if someone does a self-released, you know, band camp release are they eligible to kind of get into radio programming and have a shot at that? Or is it like only once you're on a, you know, defined major label in Canada that you end up on a certain percentage of the radio play?
0: When you're working at that level, you're kind of just selling yourself to uh, college radio stations across Canada. And a lot of the time it will pick up in places like BC and Alberta, even Manitoba, even Quebec. Where you want to try to gravitate towards if you're a young band in Canada, it doesn't really matter where you're from is to try to get noticed in Toronto. Yeah. And that's where a lot of some of the best bands that I've ever heard (laughs) bands like the smalls, they, they shit the bed when they went to Toronto and then they tried their, then they tried their game again when they went to uh, Nashville And it kind of worked out a little better when they went to the States, but it was still this weird thing of, well, like Canada doesn't accept you, which is a weird statement, but it's more Toronto doesn't accept you. But America kind of looks at it as Toronto as Canada as a whole. If you don't get accepted there, you kind of just don't get accepted. Yeah. So you kind of have to, you kind of just have to keep working and touring and it's a grueling, grueling thing to tour this country. It's big, it's vast, it's hard to get places. It's cold. The weather sucks. The roads suck. Uh, the the movie Hardcore logo, I think hits hits the nail on the head. That's that's one hundred percent what it is touring in Canada. Sure, it's hard.
1: Yeah. Is there any overlap? Like, you know, a, a band in Alberta what does it take to kind of like get through the mountain pass? Like, do you play a show in Banff on the way to Vancouver or like, is is nothing between, you know, Calgary and Alberta, I mean, in uh, Vancouver to play, like, how does that go?
0: Uh, You'll try to hit places like Kelowna and uh, Kamloops. It's these um, kind of, kind of ski resort towns. Okay. So you'll play the Banff, you'll play the Jasper, you'll play these, these, essentially resort towns for, for skiers on your way to go to Vancouver. And then you'll probably play Vancouver, Victoria. Um, lots of bands choose to fly to Vancouver and start there. Start in Vancouver, do Victoria and then they make their way through the Rockies. Um, probably hit Calgary and then go up to Edmonton and then over to Saskatchewan. And then you, you, you kind of need to go, North to south, south to north, north to south south to north, and hit as many towns as you possibly can to kind of make it worth it because it's it takes so long to get from one place to another. you may as well play you might not get anybody there, but you might sell the place out you you honestly never know when you're when you're traveling canada it's it's a strange it's a strange little place
1: right on and then you know in different experiences in Vancouver over the years there's been like a higher Um, awareness of like your gear getting stolen out of your vehicle or someone breaking into the trunk of your car and taking all the cameras or or whatever that didn't feel that same way in like Calgary do you have anything to say about that is that accurate or was I just not aware of like any danger in Calgary or like I've had more friends had things like ripped off in Vancouver than most other cities
0: I honestly we, we 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 do film a lot of films here. We have a Panavision here. We have a film studio and lots of stars come come through this province on a daily basis. There's a lot of things getting shot here and it really just seems like people don't give a shit. Um they're they're mad when you <laughs> block off a street and they and they can't get somewhere that they that they want to go and they don't really understand that you kind of have to make the content that they're going to go home and watch. It's this weird thing. It's a lot of like old conservative oil mentalities of, I. It, it's all about me. I don't really care about anything else. And the people in the arts communities, they're working 24-7. We work really long hours. You're on a film set for 15, 16, 17 hours a day sometimes or you're down at Theater Calgary and setting things up or rehearsing. You don't really have time to be out there. So you, you, you kind of save your, your time for when, when a show comes or a movie's going to play. So yeah, I just kind of feel like people, especially in this city, they're either the people that do care or are just working and in, in, they can't (laughs) go out there and do anything and anybody else just really doesn't give a shit and won't even just talk to you.
1: And then what's the regional take uh, for things that are made in other provinces like Letterkenny made in Ontario? Like, is that something that people enjoy and laugh at? Or does it feel like, oh, that's not what life is like here. That's a different province. Like, are people supportive of things Um, like Letterkenny?
0: Everything from all across Canada except for Ontario is accepted everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> then, if it's something that that is Ontario-based or Toronto-based, it does not get accepted in the West, right? For the most part, it gets accepted in in Vancouver and parts of BC, but Alberta, you you, you get a very niche market. Saskatchewan, Manitoba, it's a very niche market. But maritime kind of stuff, stuff like Letterkenny, uh, Trailer Park Boys, everybody loves it. It it gets it gets chewing up. It's it, it it plays the exact same way that something like Portlandia plays here. Both of them are very highly regarded in somewhere like Alberta.
1: How have you seen things shift in the past like ten years there? Like what what's different in the sensibility now from like two thousand ten?
0: A lot of the people that wanted Calgary to go in a certain direction when the oil wasn't going the way that it, that they kind of wanted it to go and, and left the province. Um. More artists came in, more active groups came in. There's been a lot of trying to get change happening in this province. Uh, tax cuts to try to bring more film production, more arts and culture into the province. I think it was on a good upward trend under uh, the NDP, which is the Social Democratic Party of Canada. They were running Alberta for a while. They lost the election uh, three years ago now, and put this current very Trumpian person in. And he's been trying to cut every single thing that they that they put into place, from carbon taxes to just green energy rollbacks. Trying trying to essentially make Alberta a better place. All these things have been cut in the last two years. So, there's kind of been this push back and forth between the progressives and these old style conservatives it's right now it's it's at a tipping point. I'm honestly not sure where we go from here because there's a, there's a very big community on the one side there's a very big community on the other side, and like in your country, absolutely nobody is working together and I don't see where this goes from here
1: can that person make kind of unilateral like in the states with the executive order process that the presidency kind of has which hasn't been completely established like what the limits on it are what can really be done previous president trump did a huge amount of things by executive order Um, is there a similar tool that the prime minister can use there or are there limits on like how much they can disrupt on their own
0: Uh, a prime minister kind of does have have those same kinds of things the premier which is who is who is the leader of of alberta he he doesn't have quite the same same authority that that the president would have to to change things in executive orders but the conservative party is the overwhelming majority party right now and they a, any crazy thing that he has an idea for they will pass without even looking at it um over the summer, it is now uh, incredibly hard to protest in this province. Um, there has been disturbing uh, tax things done for oil companies over the last year. Uh, Health care has been cut, and it's continually being cut, and it's getting gutted. And the federal government's not coming in, stepping in, and helping that. Um, the education system is getting gutted as well. It's a really scary time and <laughs> yeah i'm I'm honestly not sure it's it's gonna take a lot to come back from this, especially in in terms of climate destructive policies that he has now put into place. He's gotten rid of a lot of safety measures in trades and farming it's it's a strange time right now, and I will say this about the Pacific Northwest where you're at. Everybody always says the Canadians are are some of the most friendly people that they've ever met. I will go on record time and time again and say, the Pacific Northwest is nicer than any Canadian I've ever met, <laughs> especially coming, especially in Alberta. They, the, you, everybody there, is it. Is on such a a mindset it's it's really something to me every time and i i travel to seattle a lot i'm i try to get there as much as i possibly can i do think that that's the greatest city in the world um there's something to be said for maybe canadians looking down at the pacific northwest and maybe getting some of that uh some of that friendly back
1: what what, how do you normally travel back and forth to seattle do you fly and is it a hassle
0: i drive oh, yeah. okay i drive it's uh we usually make it in 12 and a half to 13 hours from calgary okay. yeah but i go down for concerts films anything <laughs> uh i i'm i'm very excited that uh that, that there's a, that there's a hockey team finally coming every everything about seattle has always been has always been mecca for me so i've <laughs> i've i've always held it in high regard is is there any spots that you uh that, that you remember from from being here
1: yeah i i've just had a great experience at a bunch of different record stores um there's a lot of like good used camera shops as well like for whatever reason economically there's like a large back stock of really interesting obscure cameras that a couple different vendors and in, in calories still sell
0: I will say that's a little bit on, on the decline right now. A lot of those stores have, have been shutting down. Uh, and, and, and that was, that was even pre pandemic. It's pretty much these, th- everybody's buying up everybody. And it's definitely a, a stranger time to be in Calgary because a lot of those cultural places, a lot of the bars, uh, a lot of the venues have shut down. So yeah, it, it 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 might not be the same when you come back here as as it was the last time you were here.
1: Okay. Is Record Land still in existence? It is. Yes. Okay. And is Sloth and still getting by?
0: Sloth and Record Land usually have a lineup. It's <laughs> I I would say those are probably our two uh biggest record stores as far as volume in and out. Uh and then Blackbird would be the third biggest probably.
1: Are hot wax and Melodia still getting by or, or what's happening with them?
0: Melodia's good. I've always felt like Melodia always survived because of the comics <laughs> that are also in there and the action figures. Um Yeah, it's it's always had a really interesting selection in there and uh they I I feel it's the exact same now as it as it's ever been. It's just it's it's always that staple.
1: Okay. And then um there was another one that had a lot of like used audio equipment. Uh, turn it up. Does that sound familiar? Uh,
0: turn Turn it up uh, has moved locations now, but they the they definitely still they have three floors of just pure equipment now.
1: Well, yeah. Again, like it was a stronger range of like you know a half dozen good record stores that were in a weird niche to me of like Nora Jones super audio disc, whatever with like multiple people buying them seemingly to like listen to or demonstrate their like expensive hi-fi stereo setups um, rather than just like this week, there's a new built to spill record.
0: Yeah. I would definitely say most people have, have a good system here. (laughs) The, the, The majority of people have, have a really spectacular system. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, Lance, I'd like to thank you for coming on here today. Uh, I hope you had some fun. All right. Well, take care of yourself. Thank you for listening. And this concludes our broadcast day.